Due to some violent content, parental discretion is advised. It's time, America. Mr. and Mr. North and South American, all the ships at sea, let's go to press. Not only will it set a new standard for excellence, but as Leonard Goldenson promised in his NAB speech in Washington last year, it will be a departure from all existing patterns. Already, the nation's press is greeting the project with enthusiasm, and I don't hesitate to call it 1967's most exciting program concept. Cats and kittens, I'm Tom Gully, and welcome to the Tom Gully Show podcast. Now, I know you've probably been hearing about the Tom Gully Show podcast on your local morning radio show or from the girl who does your hair, but you may not know exactly what it is. Well, you're in luck. I happen to be an expert on the subject. Now, here's what it is. It's the best of the whole week of webcasts that I do. That's right. Monday through Friday, I do two of them a day. I take the best of that 20 hours, I boil it down into an hour, and then I throw in some archive material and some extra content, and I turn it into a podcast. So you can take the show to a funeral or a roller derby event, which has been my lifelong dream since the invention of the iPod. And speaking of inventions, we'll talk with Jay Silver from MIT. That's right, I said MIT on this little show co-inventor of Makey Makey, a revolutionary new learning tool for kids. You'll get to hear just what a genius sounds like. But fear not, I'll be doing the interview so as to dumb it down, you know, for the rest of us. And you'll get to hear one from the vaults from my 1994 interview with 70s pro wrestler Handsome Johnny Starr. Then it's Manson family expert Brian Davis of the Tate LaBianca radio program on StarCityRadio.com. Now after the break... Our interview with the amazing Jay Silver, inventioneer from MIT. But first, let's reintroduce you to our good friend, the Tom Gully Show Translator 3000. It takes the actual words of people, that's right, the words that they say, and translates them into their new meaning. It's a revolutionary technology and only available to listeners of the Tom Gully Show like yourself. And now let's translate... Mitt Romney. I am the Tom Gully Show Translator 3000. Translating newsmakers for humans. Translating Mitt Romney. And there are various ways of doing that. One is we could raise taxes on people. That's not the way. That, corporations. Cor- corporations are people, my friend. We can raise taxes on. Of course they are. Everything corporations earn ultimately goes to people. So, where do you think it goes? What, what, whose pockets? Whose pockets? People's pockets. Okay, human beings, my friend. Translation. Of course corporations are people, my friend. 
like the person I know called Bain Capital, that was supposed to create money for some other kinds of people called human beings. But the corporation kind of people made one in five of the other corporation kind of people go bankrupt. I was playing golf with a corporation the other day. And then there was this time that a corporation and its kids came over and splashed around in my swimming pool. One of the corporation's kids took a dump in the shallow end, but you know how young corporations can be. And that corporation's wife makes really crappy potato salad, but everyone tells her it's really good anyway, since I went to high school with the corporation. I especially liked it when people that happen to be corporations use legal loopholes to avoid paying any taxes. Then the human kind of people who own them make millions. And then they give it to me. So I can make another person called a corporation and give more money to a person called Mitt Romney. My friend, this has been the Tom Galicia Translator 3000. Good day. If I only had one word to describe this new series, it would be excitement. The drama will be about people caught up in a critical moment of life and death and presented as realistically and creatively as possible. We're tremendously excited about it. We think you will be too. You're listening to The Tom Gully Show. Now, do we need to talk about Makey Makey before we even get into the banana piano? I have to tell you, one of my listeners, um, I encouraged everyone to, you know, if you've got something you want to hear about, tell me and we'll try to find out about it. And the very first person came with the banana piano, which obviously made made some <laughs> press. But in my learning a little bit about it through your pictures and some stuff, maybe we need to talk about Makey Makey before the banana piano. I mean, I guess so. The kind of simplest description I have is that Makey Makey lets you uh, alligator clip the Internet to everyday objects. So it's kind of like double dumpster diving. You dumpster dive on the internet and find something cool, and then you kind of look around in, in the real world and find something else cool, and you clip them together, and then they can talk to each other. And for those people who can you know, uh, get to it, there's photos that you have provided us that show that Makey Makey starts off with just what looks like a, a little uh, resistor board or a little uh, motherboard type of a thing, and... It almost looks like a Nintendo controller too, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then there's uh, various interfaces, ways for people to clip onto it. Um, Is is that an Ethernet thing that I see in the one picture, or what what is that connection? Yeah, like a USB cable. Right. So if you want to use Makey Makey, you kind of – here's an example of something you could do. You could Google Pac-Man and then click on any of the Pac-Mans because there's millions of them out there on the Internet. And then you plug in the USB cable – and then right away, you can play Pac-Man on the Makey Makey board with your thumbs. Um, you could just kind of hit the arrow keys and control Pac-Man. Uh, what, then what you can do is you can alligator clip each of the arrow keys to a physical object in the real world. So, for example, um, you could take four leaves off of the tree and alligator clip them and arrange them as if they were a joystick or as if they were four arrow keys. Then you can play um, Pac-Man on the leaves and the Pac-Man you found online and the leaves you found outside and you just alligator clip them on. All you do is plug in the USB cable. You don't kind of do complicated software. You don't do any hardware except, you know, those alligator clips and then you're done. Now to the banana piano. Is that just a way to demonstrate the various capabilities of Makey Makey or when you came to create it, did you have a technological or human application you were trying to achieve specifically? Um, 
Yes, to everything. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, so the banana piano is one thing you can make with a Makey Makey. Um, you Google for a piano, you alligator clip to bananas, now the bananas are the piano keys. The main purpose of Makey Makey is what you might call creative confidence or cr uh, creative invention. And, and Makey Makey, like most of my projects, are really just uh, invention platforms or platforms for creative expression. And so, um, so really the purpose is, like my, like my thesis says, my thesis is the world is a construction kit. So I'm not kind of bringing that information as a new a new thought. I mean, the world already is a construction kit. Look around, make stuff out of the world, change the way the world works. It's like basic human nature. What I'm kind of talking about in my thesis is how do we kind of highlight the fact that the world is a construction kit? Makey makey, when you open the box, it's not very interesting by itself. What's interesting is the world you live in, the internet and the objects in your world. And makey makey just helps you kind of duct tape them together. And it seems from everything I've seen on your, your, uh, your pictures, that it, it indeed is a way that you can take literally anything and it acts as an interface and the two things that you connect together or how you do that are really what makes it creative or the person using it, uh, a, you know, more creatively empowered. Um, would that be correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we want to live in a world where everybody feels that they can change the way the world works. That's our ideal. That's our utopia. Uh, our utopia is the people around me are making the world the way they want it. That's the way I want the world to be. I would like to live in a world where everybody kind of changes the world and makes it a better place in their own way, um, their own unique way. And, and that's kind of like real, to me, real kind of democracy, or it's even beyond democracy, because we're not voting with our kind of ballots or even with our money, kind of capitalist democracy, any of that. We're voting with our hands, changing the way the world works, one person, two hands each, Let's decide how the world should be. Well, and it's a radical departure. I'm old. So it is a radical, <laughs> it's a radical departure from the way I was taught. Because when I was taught, everything was more rote and follow these rules, stay within the lines, and you will achieve because everyone else expects you to do that. And we've all mutually agreed that that's how we're going to progress. It was very rarely did we, except in art class, did they say, do whatever every you want, which I personally felt was a lack of <laughs> being able to teach people art. You know, it's an, almost an impossible thing to do. Um, so, you know, rather than try to teach Johnny to be able to paint like Da Vinci, look, do whatever you want. It's a lot easier that way. I was thrilled when I saw Makey Makey for that reason, because I, like you think, most people don't realize how much ability they have to change the world around them because they've come to believe in all of these sort of um, prerequisite steps to everything they need to do in life or society. And something like Makey Makey in the hands of a child, I think, is is radically empowering and enlightening. Um, wow, I'm really glad you're saying that. I mean, I, I hope to, I aspire to that. It, it's really supposed to be, it's supposed to be really subversive, only in the sense that if someone told you, you, you can't kind of, you can't do stuff like this, that it's supposed to counter that. And it is supposed to kind of like, there's this book, The Four Agreements. And in that book, they talk about how throughout your whole life, until you're an adult at least, people make agreements with you and you accept them in your own mind or in your own heart as, as facts. And those agreements consist of things like 
you have to do things a certain way or you can't achieve certain things or, or just anything about how the world works. And the truth is most of those things aren't true. And, and then creative confidence kind of disappears. And so really, if we could bring a little bit of creative confidence into just a few people, I would be so satisfied. Okay. Now, if you could establish one practice or even ground rule for the engagement of young minds, what would it be? What's the most important element in your mind of learning or playing in terms of the way you develop technology? Oh, interesting question. Gosh, um, what is the one thing that matters the most? Huh? Um, I don't know if I can answer that directly, but let me just talk about serendipity for a second, and maybe this will be a good enough answer. Um, I think that if you, if you are, so one, one thing I designed for is tinkerability. I actually learned this from my advisor. If you can create a situation where people are tinkering, then a lot of stuff starts to happen. So if you're tinkering, you're constantly improvising. That means you're trying things out, but they're little tiny things, and most of them don't work. That's what tinkering is all about. Let me try this. Let me try this. Let me try sticking this in this hole. Let me connect this to that. Usually nothing really works out, but then like you try about 30 things, and one thing fits together. And if you can create a situation where you're tinkering, you're constantly improvising, and what you get is a kind of situation where you have probable serendipity. Like serendipity can't be probable. It's supposed to happen by accident. But if you keep improvising over and over again, then serendipity tends to happen like in improv comedy or in improv jazz or in improv making of things. So um, tinkering has this magical result. And the other thing that happens when you're tinkering is you're kind of mapping out territory. Imagine if you knew your way from place a, uh, from, from home to school, but you only knew one route, then you really don't know your neighborhood very well. And that's not how people really know a neighborhood. Someone who grows up in a neighborhood knows every back street, knows every dead end. Why bother knowing a dead end if you can't go through? Someone who knows their local neighborhood knows every dead end, every shortcut, and every kind of nook and cranny because you don't always just want to go from one place to another. You want to use a space in all kinds of creative ways. So when you're tinkering, you start to map out all the dead ends. Dead ends aren't, mistakes aren't, aren't bad. They're part of the map. You have to understand the entire map of, of, a, of a material, like if you're working with popsicle sticks and glue or something. You have to know the whole map of the space, not just the right way to do things. You have to know the right way, other ways that are less traditional and what happens when you start messing around. And then you can really become fluent, uh, a a real fluency with the material. You're listening to the Tom Gully show. Uh, What's your, what's your, what's your radio show? Where are your radio show hosts at? Where are your radio hosts? Where are you at? Where are you at? What's your, what's your show? What's it called? Is it the podcast that's non-existent? You know what? When it launches, can I be on? Can I be on? Please, 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 please. Sure thing, crazy lady. Just send an email to tom at thetomgullyshow.com. Boy, I have never met somebody with a more self-serving, pompous media blowhard that you give Rush Limbaugh a good name. Some call you fat, some call you corpulent, others call you portly. I call you a customer and a friend for life. Come on in to Victor Newsies. If you got a fat ass, I ain't gonna say nothing about it. We'll suit you, you'll suit us. You come into Victor Newsies, I guarantee you're gonna leave with a suit. 
Come on in. You'll save a ton at Vic Danuzzi's. I ain't bullshitting. Vic Danuzzi's, Highway 5, out by the mall. You know, in the Old West, sodbusters had to depend on the Pony Express to get their download of the Tom Gully Show podcast. Oh, but things are so much easier for you kids today. You can get it on iTunes and everything now. Or for a more immersive Tom Gully Show experience, just go to thetomgullyshow.com or email me. I love email at Tom at thetomgullyshow.com. Follow me on Twitter at Atomic Palooka. And please do it soon. There are Australian Aborigines with more followers than me. And, of course, you can like us on Facebook at The Tom Gully Show. Oh, boy. More from MIT's Jay Silver, co-inventor of the banana piano, courtesy of Makey Makey, a revolutionary toy for kids, which you can find at MakeyMakey.com. That's M-A-K-E-Y-M-A-K-E-Y.com. Jay has more awards and honors than I can list. He's a frequent speaker at TEDx events, former engineer of the year at Georgia Tech. Time Magazine named one of his inventions as a top 15 toys for young geniuses. And yet, inexplicably, he's here on this program. Here's more from the inspiring, philosophical, and imaginative Jay Silver. Now, do you, do you view modern technology as um, a way of getting people to learn differently than, than they have over the past, you know, generations? Or do you think that people have always assimilated basically in the same ways and that new technology just offers more variety of ways for them to learn things? Well, I think usually new technology just repeats kind of like the, the paradigm of learning by broadcast. So there's a central agency that determines what should be learned and it's broadcast through textbook TV, uh, chalkboard, or any other method, and new technologies tend to follow that. So really, I don't think new technologies, typically the way they're used in the world, are all that useful. But what's interesting is the way that really um, new technologies allow you to extend the creativity of the human, and old technologies are capable of that too. So I'm actually not partial to using computers or electronics like I think we can, it's, it's more about the idea of how learning happens. And in the case, in my particular case, working at Media Lab at MIT, yeah, of course I focused on electronic ways of doing art, electronic ways of programming and, and learning. Um, but really these are just, these are tools. I mean, a crayon and a paper has infinite possibilities. And we always say like, what would be the crayon for a 15 year old what would be the kind of like building blocks for uh, a 30 year old who, who wants to learn something new? Those don't necessarily exist. If you look at kindergarten, it was not just an accident. Kindergarten was um, invented uh, and named by someone and specifically designed with specific manipulatives. Uh, it was designed by Froebel and those manipulatives were called gifts and he designed them as gifts to the learner. And, Children, literally translated, it translates to child garden. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Well, if you're raising a garden of children, then if you're the teacher, 
then you are like a gardener. And that means the children are growing on their own and you're just making a nice environment for them to grow. So, I mean, what about kindergarten for grownups? And that's why my group is called Lifelong Kindergarten. It really has nothing to do with five-year-olds. It really has everything to do with learning by trying, learning by sharing, station-based learning, hands-on learning, um, all well, this kind of like before the classroom happened. Yeah. I mean, the other thing about my kindergarten experience, it was learning without fear of, of reprisal or repercussion. In other words, you know, you got to second grade and they started to teach you English and that learning had a, a large measure of this is wrong. This is right. Uh, kindergarten did not have that provided you kept the school glue out of Mary's hair. Um, there was really no right and wrong in terms of uh, what we were doing. I grew up in Midland, Michigan, which is a, a big Dow Chemical headquarters, and uh, was lucky enough to be in some classes where they would actually bring in a clock, take it apart in front of you, and just put all the parts out and say, okay, now do what you want with them. If you can put it back together, great. If you want to make a painting out of this or a, a mobile, go ahead. Wow. Do whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, uh, you know, grad school can be pretty good if you have a good advisor. Kindergarten is usually pretty good if you have the right teacher. And everything in between seems to have gotten it upside down with theory first and action later. I think if you just give somebody a chance to do something real in the world, they're going to want to know all the theory. And motivation is worth 10 times more than any amount of textbook. Where do you see the future of innovation in terms of what you do uh, for for people with the technology, and what excites you the most about the future? I mean, maybe the decentralized nature of it, the, the fact that the industrial productivity era of humankind is, is not going to go away completely, but it's kind of falling apart as the main central authority. And then all of these decentralized methods of making and manufacturing like 3d printing or like home labs uh, even even the um desktop printer the uh, that prints paper wow if you if you would tell me 20 years ago that i could for a hundred dollars have a full color printer that could manufacture an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper with anything in the world printed on it in less than 10 seconds i would not believe you and this is what's happening it's not just in 2d but it's in 3d it's not just in one material like plastic but it's becoming multiple materials and this idea of decentralized manufacturing, in other words, the main power in the world, possibly industry, <clears throat> is becoming spread into individuals' hands, and that means power is becoming decentralized. I always think you have a stronger fabric of humanity when everybody is participating. Um, and that's the basic principle behind democracy anyways. It's just that how do you enact democracy? Real power is in doing things. Well, and it's interesting that you say that because look at my situation. Now, number one, uh, in a time when communications have become more and more and more sort of conglomerated, um, at the same time in history that's going on, there is a huge destabilization and decentralization of that to the point where these giant conglomerates are now getting the information from people like me. I'm sitting here. And if you'd have told me when I went to Ball State back in the 50s, whenever it was, that I could have a camera in my home studio with a microphone <laughs> and broadcast to everyone on Earth, not just locally, not just statewide, not just within my own country, but to everyone on the planet, I would not have believed you. And I am a person who went through the transition from uh, IBM Selectric to... Macintosh MacBook Pro. I mean, when I got into the business of advertising and communications, 
when you wanted to make just a simple print ad, it took a week to get the typeset. Just a week. And if a client needed that changed, they knew it was amazingly expensive and extremely time-consuming. Today, the client sits on the person's shoulder and watches them change the ad in front of them. And I experienced that. And I can, I can tell you, as someone who is a working professional in the communications field, that change, that that speed, has that has totally radically altered the way companies, at least, communicate to people. It, it has totally altered it. Yeah, <clears throat> it's funny. On the show right now, we... You know, you don't answer to, well, I don't know who you answer to, but you are making your own decisions. Uh, you're choosing who to cover. Your customers or your listeners are choosing who to listen to. And we're kind of voting with our, with our feet or with our actions. It's really powerful. Um, and, and this kind of idea that we can change things right away uh, lets us make mistakes constantly and iterate constantly so that if you have one print ad, you might have changed it a thousand times, easily dozens of times, before it ever hits, um, hits print. And, uh, and that's possible because we have new tools, and those new tools really are amazing. The kind of the hit of the Macintosh, and now in 2012, the maker movement, the rise of the maker movement, and all of these tools, 3D printing, printing, internet technology, home electronics, all this stuff, coming about, becoming easy enough that an ordinary person can finish something in five minutes, which means they can start over on it and do it again so that after an hour, they've done it 12 times. And when you do something 12 times all the way through, you have a really nice product at the end. It's called well, iteration. It's amazing that you mentioned, because I, that, I just came to the realization as you said it, that you know, back in my younger days, when you'd think I would be more, more you know, liberal and expansive and have less filter on me, I was a lot more worried about doing it right the first time, I think, because of the technology. And when you were saying that, <laughs> yeah, I, I do tend to uh, edit, re-edit, and re-edit my re-edits on, on my, my postings on, on the web. So that's very appropriate. Now, what's next for Jay Silver? What's, and what's how next can, for me? How can folks learn more about what you're doing and your inventioneering? Okay, well, let me first say that um, the Makey Makey project was made by myself and Eric Rosenbaum, so we did that together. Um, and you can find out more about it uh, by Googling for it or typing in makeymakey.com. Um, right now, I'm about to take a job with Intel Labs as a maker research scientist, and I'm going to be working on two things there. One is uh, helping the maker movement, because myself and Intel are both interested in uh, contributing to this new uprising of people acting with their hands. Um, and uh, at the same time, I'm going to be learning from the maker movement and teaching Intel how to do more kind of rapid, super rapid, like minutes long prototyping in the style of the makers. Um, so that's kind of my next job uh, that I have. When is your uh, PhD study? Uh, in when would we be calling you Dr. Jay Silver? Um, okay, well... Uh, in two months, uh, I hope to finish. Uh, my advisor, if you're out there listening, uh, you know, I uh, really hope to finish by August. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. Uh, Mr. Silver, thank you so much for being on the Tom Gully Show. It has been a delight to talk to you. Um, best of success in the future, as I'm sure you'll experience. And uh, maybe we can have you on again sometime when you come up with your next uh, great invention. Thank you so much. This is really nice. And to everyone out there, you guys can do anything that you can imagine you can do. Ladies and gentlemen... 
The chief hope of our enemies is to divide the United States along racial and religious lines and thereby conquer us. Let's not spread prejudice. A divided America is a weak America. Through our behavior, we encourage the respect of our children and make them better neighbors to all races and religions. Remind them that being good neighbors has helped make our country great and kept her free. Thank you. You're listening to The Tom Gully Show. Just where did all this dynamite content come from, I hear you cry? Well, that's simple. Just go to thetomgullyshow.com. Now, you can hear the daily nothing. That's the weird world in under 30 minutes. We shoot for 20, guarantee 30. Of the bizarre news stories, morally safer won't be covering. And that's at 6 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. And then at 8 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday, there's the Tom Gully Show, which is interviews and other stuff. So there. Speaking of stuff, here's more stuff. This one's from The Vaults, my 1994 interview with hilarious 70s professional wrestler, handsome Johnny Starr. So did you wrestle Dick the Bruiser, though? Many times. Yeah. Tell us about the uh, story of uh, Dick the Bruiser up in Chicago with the uh, chain. Well, <laughs> you know, Dick the Bruiser weighed about 255 pounds. And he was known as a tough guy. Mm -hmm. And I was known as Handsome Johnny Starr and had the image you might expect with that, not being an especially big guy. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, the most brutal beating I ever got from Dick the Bruiser was in Chicago one night. We were in a chain match, and it was an absolute sellout. It was myself and Ox Baker against Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher. And towards the end of the match... I was bleeding a little, which was not uncommon. And I was good at that, by the way. (laughs) And... uh, Bruiser wrapped the chain around my neck, which was the first time that had ever happened to me. I'd only been in the wrestling business a couple of years. And he pulled that tight and cut my wind off. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, that, that absolutely panicked me when he did. You, if you've never had that done to you. And, Tom, mm-hmm. I know you, you sometimes on your dates and things have probably <laughs> experienced that. But, but in a wrestling ring, it's a little different. And uh, I grabbed that chain, jerked him clear across the ring. I mean, an adrenaline rush, uh-huh. which he did not appreciate being embarrassed <laughs> like that. And, uh, well, I've still got pictures of that massacre. That was, that was kind of a tough night after that. What else you got for a handsome Jenny star here today, Jack? Okay, now your nickname is, of course, Handsome Johnny Star. How did that come about? It, it wasn't so much a nickname as I think initially when I walked into the room, that was just the response that people had. It, was, mm-hmm. it, it, it emanated from me. You I know, see. Like you see a big guy, you say, there's Big John. I walked in, it was Handsome John. So it was, it was just <laughs> something I couldn't avoid. So it was more or less just accuracy it in was your just, opinion. It was a description more than a nickname. Now, weren't you gorgeous? Johnny Starr at, at, the, at first, and then you modesty took over. Well, I, I think there was, a, you might say, some degree of controversy at a very high level. Uh-huh. Was I gorgeous? Was I handsome? I just stepped back from <laughs> it and let him fight it out, and I guess handsome finally won. <laughs> okay, 333-2665 is the number to call today on the Afternoon Edition if you have questions regarding professional wrestling or handsome Johnny Starr's uh, many, many experiences that we certainly will cover. Oh, yes, and by the way, today... And you already talked about one of my favorite uh, anti-heroes, Angelo Poffo, and yeah. uh, his son. Yeah. And didn't he have another son that was active in wrestling? Yeah, Lanny Poffo. Lanny Poffo. Right. Leaping Lanny. Right, right. 
Uh, was Steve Regal uh, Dick the Bruiser's uh, son-in-law? No. Mm -mm. Oh, that was. Mm -mm. No. Do you That's know Spike Huber. Spike Huber. That's Spike Huber. Was. Okay, very Was, good. yeah, Spike Huber was married to Dick the Bruiser's daughter. About the time that you quit hearing Spike was wrestling anymore <laughs> was about the time that I think that... Uh, the marriage ended, yeah. Well. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, Norm, now, one time I, I have talked to you, you told me a story about Spike Huber that borders on my question, would wrestlers ever use a lack of personal hygiene to their advantage? <laughs> I can't remember what story well, I Well, you had told me that sometimes he would put his hands yeah, in Yeah, yeah, that was... Yeah, Spike, uh, I don't know where he'd been or where his hands had been. And didn't want to know. And didn't want to know other than that it was a faintly familiar smell, you know, <laughs> not unlike the bear. And he'd stick those hands on your face and nose, and I mean, that was the most disgusting. But, you know, Spike Huber was a, was a great wrestler. In fact, I think he's bodybuilding now. He may have moved to Tennessee or he may be back up here, but uh, he was a really, really top-notch wrestler. And a, a few years ago, he was injured pretty severely down in Tennessee, I think in a car wreck. And that kind of uh, stymied his wrestling career. But I, I haven't talked to him for several several years. Why don't you run down a list of the people that you had actually managed as well as uh, wrestling? I mean, I think, you know, we, I think we all know of Handsome Johnny Starr, the, the uh, you know, premier elite wrestler. Mm -hmm. But not many people know about your uh, storied and uh, star-studded managerial career. I started with uh, a guy named Ox Baker. Oh. When I first came up here. Ox Baker. Now, Ox, I can remember from my childhood being about, what, seven and a half feet tall, yeah. no hair, and uh, looked like Mr. Clean uh, having done too many drugs during the 60s. Right. One of the most obnoxious people I think I ever met had, had painted his toenails for some reason, which nobody has ever quite discerned. Or had why. the guts to question or had, him. Or really even wanted to ask him about. That's right. But I started managing him, and uh, and shortly after signing a contract with him, took him to a, a world title. And uh, signed on a couple guys called the Legionnaires. Oh, I can remember. They were nasty. Now, nasty. let me tell you about the Legionnaires. One of the Legionnaires was a guy named Donnie Fargo. You ask about odd things that have happened. <laughs> I don't even know if I can say this on radio. Well, as long as it's not profane, you go right it's ahead. It's not profane, but it, but it does have to do with, with, with certain digits of the body here. Uh, okay, well, just go ahead, I guess. <laughs> You've we'll... got the button. You can... Okay. Donnie, Donnie Fargo was, was absolutely one of the most incredible people ever. He couldn't read or write, but a tremendous physical specimen, very tough guy. had been in the motorcycle gangs and, and that type of thing. I was 23 years old, walked into a dressing room in Kokomo, Indiana. And you know people get various parts of their body pierced nowadays, the uh, ears, the nose. Uh, yes, sir. He was sitting there hammering... Oh. his manhood into the table with a nail about, I don't know, about a six-penny nail, I guess. I absolutely stopped in my tracks. Now, you didn't have to wrestle him this evening. No, I was managing him, thank God. <laughs> I'd have turned around and left. But this is, you know, people don't believe me when I say this, but I guess as part of the initiation rites in the group that he had been in with the, with the motorcycle people, they pierced you know, somewhat more obscure areas of their body, and that hole was still there. So it was a great gag to pull on people, to go into a high school gym and nail yourself to a table, and the doctor would walk in. There he was. <laughs> Picture that, if you will. Oh, man. Now, uh, absolute, absolute. That was just one of the Legionnaires. Now, did, does the other Legionnaire come with, with his own uh, no, bizarre no, the story? the other Legionnaire was, was just tame by comparison. <laughs> okay. A guy named Jacques Goulet, who later went on to a lot of success with the WWF.
450 here at AM 1370. I'm Tom Gully. You're listening to the Afternoon Edition, and we're talking with professional wrestler handsome Johnny Starr. Uh, let's just go down this list here I have of people that you perhaps could wrestle yeah. and how you would go about wrestling yeah. them. Let's go right off the top of the list, Madonna. Now, she lipped off to David Letterman a couple weeks ago. How would you wrestle Madonna? You know what she needs? She needs discipline. <laughs> you know, and I'm just the guy that could provide that. And I wouldn't really care how I uh, wrestle her just so I ended up on top. Okay, uh, Ross Perot. Now, you know, how would you wrestle him? Would he, you know, because you know how he's going to come out and wrestle. He's going to be very, very strategic and, and uh, come out and just be, oh, yeah. You know, look under the hood. We're going to get it. We're going to, you know, That's he's right. just going to come out there and, uh, and, pr- and probably tell you what he's going to do before he does it to yeah, you. But it doesn't matter because he's got an obvious weakness, which is you can grab onto those ears, tie him around his throat, and choke him. Okay. So, once again, the, the standard pretty much is the, uh, the choke hold. Judo chop to the chair, a judo chop to the throat, and then the chair, I You're think, right. is the standard uh, handsome Johnny Starr. Okay. Rush Limbaugh. You know, Rush Limbaugh wouldn't be hard to wrestle at all because even though he's a good-sized man, he starts with his foot in his mouth. So you got him <laughs> half beat before you even approach the guy. So he'd be easy. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jeff George, who, you know, isn't here anymore to wrestle, but... Jeff George, I wouldn't want to wrestle, and I'll tell you why, because I'm not used to, after beating an opponent, sitting there and watching him cry. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, how about the Menendez twins? Wouldn't want to wrestle them, but love to manage them. My kind of guys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now that I think of it, that is pretty good. They, they yeah. would be a good... Uh, great tag team. A great tag team. One of them watches the parents while the other one drives to San Diego and buys a shotgun. You talk about a one-two punch. <laughs> okay. Uh, how about uh, Roseanne Barr? Roseanne Barr, I would wrestle her only from a distance. Can you imagine where she's been and on a hot day, a oh, little yeah. exercise, what that's going to smell like? Plus, that's out of the weight class. That's definitely out of my weight class. All right. Uh, how about uh, her partner in crime, John Goodman? John Goodman, he is so big, I think I'd hire that out. Hire that out? Okay. Uh, Lorena Bobbitt. Lorena Bobbitt, again, a tough one to come up with a strategy with, and you'd have to do it by the process of elimination, and the first thing you eliminate on her is a head scissor, because you ain't going to let her close. <laughs> With the scissors, no. no. Uh, let's see, who else we got on this list? Uh, let me just add, I'd like to know how you would wrestle Hillary Clinton. You know, Hillary Clinton, I'd like to have an opportunity at her because I think she's one that if, if you happen to be in, a, in a, a frame of mind where you're willing to submit, she mm-hmm. would be willing to dominate. And uh, you may not win, but I think you'd really enjoy the match. The submission hold is the, probably. That's right. Okay. That's right. What about the Ninja Turtles? The Ninja Turtles, I'd have to take advice from my son because he practices wrestling those guys constantly. Mm-hmm. On the and video he, games? Oh, my God. He's on the video games. He's got the little rubber swords, and he's, he's out there, you know, whacking my friends and, and cutting the dog's tail off and things. And so, so he's ready, and I think he could help me on that. Okay, so he'd be the manager. Yeah. Now, if you were going to wrestle them, there's three or four of them. Tag team, who would you pick as a tag team for that? See, I think Bobo Brazil. Would be great because he's the master of the headbutt. Yeah. And he comes in and breaks the shell with the headbutt. Yeah. And then yeah. It's, it's turtle soup. Yeah. Well, I think you probably got it right on the money. I think Bobo would be a great partner to have with that. Tanya Harding. Now, she, she was uh, approached by the Japanese yeah. Women's Wrestling Federation, right. Right. Uh, a very honored wrestling federation, uh, to be a wrestler. Now, how would you go about wrestling I'd, her? I'd use the club on her. I mean, I think she's got the best approach. <laughs> Just use the foreign object. On Nancy Kerrigan, too, you know. The foreign object. Yeah. Now, amongst wrestlers, does that foreign object go in before the match? I mean, you, you know, there's other wrestlers in, in the area. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and as, as someone who might, and I'm not saying you would ever use a foreign object, but as someone who might know of how yeah. one was used uh, accidentally, uh, what would a foreign object be? 
Well, you know, I've seen a lot of things. I've seen people take the corner of a popcorn box, for instance, and use that. I've seen people take a piece of paper and rub it with substances. Uh, I've seen pieces of metal. I've seen brass knuckles. Now, did the sheik really throw some sort of a dust, some sort of Arabian... Uh, he threw fire. Oh, fire. That and, was it. And I, you know, honestly could not tell you how he did that, but he legitimately threw fire. And I saw uh, some of his victims afterwards with the eyebrows burned off and things. And that was a real nasty, real nasty thing that he did. You're listening to The Tom Gully Show. Every day, as the war against Japan increases in intensity, the need for waste, fats, and greases grows more critical. Here's one department where the enemy may be superior, unless you help make up the difference from your kitchens. Save all waste, fats, and greases, no matter how discolored. Keep a clean can in which to strain them, and take them regularly to your butcher. Remember, for every pound, he'll give you four cents plus two extra meat points. There's highlights of our programs all over the TomGullyShow.com, but for the truly morbidly curious, go to Justin.tv slash TomGully. Tons of stuff there, too. Now here's Brian Davis of StarCityRadio.com, host of the Tate LaBianca radio program. Brian and his minions have unearthed details of the Manson family killings that have remained secret for over 40 years. Go to archive.org and check out his interviews with William Gerritsen, sole survivor at Cielo Drive where Sharon Tate was killed, or the interview with Stephanie Schramm, Charlie Manson's last girlfriend who had never spoken on the subject. Till now. Here's Brian Davis, Manson family expert. Charlie gets into a riff with another guy, a drug dealer called Bernard Crow. Bernard Crow has a beef uh, or an issue with Tex Watson. Tex Watson had, had burned Bernard Crow. Tex Watson had burned him on some drugs, took him to an apartment, went in that front, got some money, went out the back door, and that was it. They didn't see Tex Watson anymore. Tex went straight back to the ranch. Said, Charlie, look at all this money I got. I just stole it from uh, this guy. We're good. Well, the guy that he stole it from, Bernard Crow, was a big-time drug dealer. He calls up the ranch, and he says to Charlie, Charlie, if you guys don't come up here and give me my money back, I'm going to kill this girl who was Tex Watson's girlfriend at the time, unquote, quote, whatever. Uh, and then I'm going to come and burn the whole ranch down. That's what he told Charlie. Charlie says, no, that can't happen. So he gets in the car. He took T.J. Wallerman with him. And they went up, and a gun, and they went up to confront Lots of Papa. And they said, listen, I had nothing to do with this thing, you getting burned. Lots of Papa says, I don't care. You're going to either give me that money back or I'm going to kill the girl, then I'm going to kill you. Charlie took out the gun and shot the guy in the chest. He let the guy uh, drop, and the guy played dead. Charlie left, thought that he had killed Lots of Papa. He thought for sure he had killed the guy. What he didn't know is that Bernard Crow took himself to the emergency room, wouldn't tell who shot him, and then lived. And Charlie never knew that until Lots of Papa actually testified in court. Um, in fact, from what I understand, he was could have sworn he saw a ghost when he saw Lots of Papa come in. <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> passed terrible. each other in the hallway or something. Yeah, he was yeah, totally very, shocked. Very... And as I understand it, uh, Lots of Papa held on to that bullet, and Bugliosi wanted it because it was fired from the Buntline special that was at Cielo Drive. And Lots yes. of Papa said, nah, I don't think so. I'm keeping it. 
Very, very good, Tom, and that is exactly right. Interesting that, according to the gardener at Cielo Drive, Charles Manson and Sharon Tate saw each other. Uh, he came to the house and was turned away, and she came out as he was walking away. Uh, according to, I, th- I can't th- remember the guy's name, it's Hitaki. Hitami, H- H- yes. He, yeah. And actually, he was the uh, photographer. He was oh, Sharon's photographer. photographer. Yes. And they had a, a meeting, or a, kind of a run-in, as you said, and he told him, uh, I think, uh, I forget who Charlie was looking for, it might have been Melcher or, no, I think Charlie actually had a conversation with Rudy Altabelli about Melcher not living there, and then I think exactly. he was up there with Tommy, and they met, and he simply said, don't, you know, just leave, get out of here, and I think he went out through the back or something, but uh, he did, he, yeah, he did meet eyes, supposedly, with Sharon Tate. Rudy Altabelli, but, nice guy. Bills the uh, Tate Estate or the Polans- Roman Polanski for the cleanup of, of the Cielo Drive location. That is that is classy. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if you were being sarcastic for a moment. I was hoping to detect a note there in your voice, but yeah, I, I thought, what what is this about? You know, you know, another interesting thing I wanted to add about the oddities of the Cielo Drive murders that people might not know. Here's some things that that, that are interesting in my, or at least one thing. There was a pair of eyeglasses. I was just about never... to ask you. It's been bugging me for <laughs> centuries. <laughs> The eyeglasses, sure. I mean, it's the one piece of evidence to this day has never been identified with an owner. Nobody. We have never been able, or they have never been able to place the eyeglasses. And that, of course, leads speculation that Charles Manson returned to the scene of Cielo Drive after the murders sometime that night early morning. And uh, a lot of people think that he planted those glasses to throw people off. And a couple of other things also might lead to that. There is blood on the front porch that supposedly is Sharon and Jay's blood, but what happened? Did they move the bodies there and move them back? If they did, wouldn't there be some kind of debris? I mean, there's a lot of questions here, Tom, that people love to, and I think it just continues to drive the, the, the interest in these murders, and that's the type of little, uh, you know, little complex details of the case that just continue not to make sense it's interesting when you go back and you look at how they actually took that house over and for everything to fall in place literally it for text to go in and do what they did everything had to fall into place timing of how they arrived when they arrived you know to, to walk in and catch Wojtek asleep on the couch you know, Wojtek never had a chance, number one. He was asleep when Tex kicked him awake with a gun in his face. Uh, same with the others. They were in the bedrooms, respectively, winding down for the evening. Total by surprise. How they got it. Everything just fell into place. It's remarkable. And the fact that they were able to walk in, round everybody up, I, I, it, it just blows me away. Uh, it is the most unbelievable set of events that, that uh, to this day still still just i can't wrap my i can barely wrap my mind around it if it, if at all no and one of the characters in this whole saga is the late 60s uh during that time and with those people in that culture having guests just show up and and sort of flop or or crash or hang out or whatever you want to call it was not uncommon and therefore you know that was i think part of the whole 
subterfuge as well, is that everyone there was kind of like, well, there's people here, but it's a social sort of setting. I'm sure someone here knows who they are, and uh, therefore no cause for alarm. That happened a lot. You're right. Um, I always was, was amazed how easily that took place at Dennis Wilson's house. I mean, do you know a rock star right now today where you could just walk up into their house and, I don't know, put on a party? Until they got there, I mean, that's what happened at Dennis Wilson's place. Oh yeah, he then he leave and he came back and the place was just raging. He he <laughs> he, he picked up two girls. He had fun with the two girls and then yeah. he had to go somewhere. And when he came back, his house is yeah. you know uh, oh, they got the a Burning Man festival breaking out. Yeah, and there's Charles Manson in the middle of it all. Well, you know, uh, I think the average person would also be shocked if they were to know. How many movies and television programs as a child or, you know, even now that were actually shot at the Spawn Ranch where Charlie and the family hung out before going out to the Barker Ranch? And there resided a guy by the name of Shorty Shea. Now, everybody was pretty much intimidated by Charlie, but not Shorty Shea. Um can you talk a little bit about Shorty and and I'm I'm glad they finally found you know uh, where where he's where he was buried. Yeah, um, yeah, and and that's that's a great setup, uh, Tom. Shorty Shea was the ranch hand out there, and anytime you watch one of the Lone Rangers old video or old episodes of the Lone Rangers, you'll probably see Spawn Ranch. They filmed a lot of the episodes there. And uh, you're right. A lot of the, a lot of the old Westerns were filmed there. And uh, Shorty Shea was a part of that whole deal for a long time out there. He was one of the ranch hands at Spawn and a new Randy Starr and uh, all of them. I mean, that's how they were. They were there long before Charlie. And, and Short, Shorty in a lot of movies himself. Yes. Yes. As an extra. Sure. Sure. And they were there a long time before Charlie and the family showed up and as i understand it there was a neighboring property owner that, that, that owned the neighboring property of the spawn ranch i forget his name off the top of my head it starts with an r reed or red or something like that he could he he hated the family hated charles manson and the family and he tried to work with shorty is what they were doing they were working in tandem him, he and, and shorty to try to get rid of charlie and the family and this has been going on for a while and as this is going on other things are starting to escalate as well okay you've got first of all charlie doesn't like shorty at all because of this he's also shorty has a black wife at this time and charlie certainly doesn't like this Mm -hmm. and as things are starting to develop around the ranch in other words the murders and the helter skelter and we got to start a race war and all this stuff is going on uh shorty's hearing some things around the ranch you know he's hearing these things words getting around to him and he's overhearing conversations and charlie's getting paranoid so a gary hinman murder happens lots of papa shooting happens um i'm trying to think if i'm pretty sure that the Tate LaBianca murders happened. I've got to go back and get this chronological down. But Shorty Shea starting to know too much information, from what I understand. So Charlie gets <laughs> the usual suspects up. He uh, rounds up Bruce Davis, rounds up Clem, Steve Grogan. 
I had thought he had rounded up uh, Tex to go with him, but I, have, I might have to go back and check at that. I do know Steve Grogan and Bruce Davis was with them. And uh, they all got in the car and, and somehow convinced Shorty to go with them. We're going to give you a ride up here to get some supplies. We need to get some supplies from town. So we need to get up there and go. So he got in the car with them, and they drove off up the road. Shorty tried to get him to stop and pull over or something. From what, and, again, you've got to believe the killer's version here, so that's the sad thing. Mm-hmm. But Shorty tried to get him to pull over. Instead of pulling over, they, uh, I think one of them, and it might have been Tex. I'm pretty sure Tex was with them. One of them, or Bruce Davis, one of them hit him in the back of the head from the back, back seat. And they got him out of the car, and they basically just started to beat him and stab him until he was dead. You're listening to The Tom Gully Show. You can check out the Tate LaBianca radio program at StarCityRadio.com Sunday nights at 8 Eastern. An incredible chat room is there with experts, authors, and investigators. Plus, you can get archived podcasts of his shows at archive.org. The William Garrettson interviews open up a whole bunch of stuff I guarantee you've never heard about the night of the Sharon Tate murders. Now, more of our good friend Brian Davis, host of the Tate LaBianca radio program. Now, on to the family. Your show has done an incredible job of updating us on the family. Not all these people, as you mentioned, want to be updated about either. Uh, We all know Charles Manchin's in jail, not due for parole for some time. In fact, probably won't see his next parole hearing, some think. I think that most people believe that Charles Manson was convicted of murder in these particular, uh, the Tate LaBianca murders, and, and not so. Conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Yes, not so, right, because he was never actually on site. He was never, never had his hands in the murders themselves. Yeah, he was at the LaBianca house, supposedly, but not when the killings occurred. Um, and that's when why... tied them up. Well, went went and, in the house and tied them up. And, and that's why in all of his interviews, he claims, I never killed anybody, you know, and... and <laughs> Uh, That's this, right. This Very good. Crazy. Very Charlie good invitation. Oh, don't get me going. I can do Charlie no. for weeks. I've, you know, <laughs> Charlie to me was was like a muppet when I was a kid. When Diane Sawyer interviewed him or Geraldo, it's just he was this <laughs> crazy, you know, Oscar the Grouch or something. But uh, Susan Atkins is dead now. Now, how did you feel about the denial of a release from prison due to her medical condition? When even Vincent Bugliosi was advocating that she be released when it was very, very clear that, that she was on her last legs. That surprised me that Vince Bugliosi would, would do that. I, I was, I was surprised at that. My opinion was, you know, let her die in prison. I, I, I just don't have sympathy for what, what they did. And I might be different Tom, because I revisit these murders every day of my life. I'm, I'm, I'm somewhere along the line of the day in, in research. I, you know, you can't help but retouch what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, she was so that, unrepentant at the time. Uh, I mean, she was, she the, was one of the worst. Yeah. She, she was the most vulgar of all of the, uh, 
of all of the actual killers. I, I think, and we'll touch on some of these people. Hopefully, if you can stay on the line with us, I know yeah, we've no, gone no, quite no, a while. Fine, yeah. um, but I don't think people know just how deadly some of the family members who you know aren't well known were. I mean, the, the, those who went and actually committed these murders bad enough, but there were several of Charlie's, let's say, soldiers, um, predominantly women who were extremely dangerous people. On to Tex Watson, Charlie's right-hand man, certainly the lead at CLO Drive. Can you talk about the controversy over the taped interview with Tex and update us on that? Yeah. Um, just last week, um, let's see here. At last count, I was going to say, let me go back here. On the 20... Seventh on June twenty seventh. Uh, yes. Okay. Recently, there have been some tapes that have come out. Uh, conversations between Tex Watson and his then attorney Bill Boyd back in nineteen seventy, while Tex was in jail for these murders. Um, was this before they got him out of Texas, or was this in Texas? In Texas, while he was there waiting to be extradited back for the murders. You gotta love Texas, boy. He yeah. he had an in with somebody. Uh, his Tex was Tex was an all-American boy from Texas. I think he attended the same school as Willie Nelson or or something of that nature, and uh, was was a star athlete. And I believe had a relative or some tie with the county sheriff somewhere, and and they had a, a heck of a time extraditing him. Yes, yes, absolutely right, Tom. Thank you. Um, and that is the background there, and that's, that's and you'll see in a minute here how this really plays out because these tapes were made in um, between, like I said, his lawyer, Texas lawyer Bill Boyd, and Tex while he was there being held for the murders. And after the conversations were made, there were about I think there were about um, eight hours worth of tape that was made on this. After they were made, they were put away. And then some years later, Texas, Tex Watson's chaplain wanted to write a book about Tex and his story and everything. And Tex agreed to use those tapes to let the Lord, to let his chaplain have those tapes. He signed away his lawyer client privileges at that time and let the chaplain have the tapes for a book. The chaplain went on and wrote the book tapes went back to the lawyer Bill Boyd and they sat in Bill Boyd's possessions for years. Bill Boyd passed away I don't know when back some years back in 08 or something like that and his law firm had these tapes and finally they went into bankruptcy in the law firm and during the bankruptcy one of the trustees contacted the police department and said you know you guys might want to listen to these tapes I don't know there might be something on them and this has been a couple months ago. So the LAPD said, well, okay, we'd like to get them. Let's come out there and get them. So they said, okay, come get them. Well, before they could do that, Tex Watson jumped in last week or a couple weeks ago, and he said, wait a minute, I'm going to file an injunction here to stop this because I don't think it's right that these tapes get turned over to the police. I don't mind the police listening to them, but I don't want them having possession of them, so I'm filing a motion to stop. It was denied. Well, Tex amended the motion and filed another one. It was denied. Well, he indicated that he was going to go to a higher court. When he indicated that, the LAPD said, well, we're just going to sit back here, and instead of going all the way out to Texas to pick these tapes up and then have to give them back because we of what Tex might do, Tex Watson might do, we'll just sit back and wait. 
So while they were waiting, Tex went ahead and appealed to a higher court. On June 27th, he found a judge, guess where, a federal judge in the state of Texas, to grant him an injunction. So now those tapes are in, in limbo until a judge can decide whether or not the LAPD needs to have possession of them. And so Tex momentarily won that battle. Some of the most dangerous Manson girls weren't even involved in the Tate-LaBianca murders. I don't think Charlie picked his top girls to go, to well, go murder. I, I think Charlie picked the people that he disliked the most in the family. I think Charlie picked the ones that were The easiest, the most complicit, too, the ones yeah. that he knew were going to follow his orders. Well, more. you could argue that. Let's, let me ask you this. If he would have sent Squeaky Fromm to do his dirty work, Squeaky would have done it without hesitation. Sandra Good would have done it without hesitation. Nancy Mary Bruner, Nancy Pittman would have more than been happy to go up there and do it. He never sent those, though, because Charlie, in my opinion, truly loved these girls. He really loved them. He really, you know, Squeaky never got on his nerves. Sandra Good never got on his nerves. He, he was never irritated by Brenda. He couldn't stand Susan Atkins. Well, he couldn't stand her. That's, that's not necessarily top... a character flaw on Charlie's part. No, no, no. <laughs> right, that's a good point. Uh, there's one favorite story of mine they tell. I don't know how true or not it is, but they said uh, one time Charlie told Susan to go get him a coconut. He said, I want one from the Bahamas. Susan was going out the door to go to the Bahamas and get him one. Okay, so well, Squeaky Farm paroled right now. She lives up in New York, upstate. In fact, she's on our list. Uh, we've got, I finally got her phone number. I finally found a connection. Someone that knows her gave me her phone number. So you, you might hear Squeaky on our program soon. I don't know. But, well, uh, and, and I, think, I think these people, regardless of how mentally stable they are, they may want a forum. I mean, the whole I, ATWA thing and, and even to just get Charlie's message out there, uh, you know, I, I hope that she does talk with you. I hope so. I, again, you know, that, that remains to be seen because, as I mentioned earlier, I, get in, I can contact these people. I've got great resources, but when it comes to them talking, it hasn't been pleasant. Um, some of them have been nicer than others. Others have been flat out <laughs> just, just nasty rude to me about uh, talking on, 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 such, on such subject. Well, Sandra Good, um, she, I tried to get I, in. Yeah, I know she, for many years she had kept up his website and that she was behind that. I, I don't know right to the second what she's up to. Yeah. Sandra Good was, as you said, one of Charlie's biggest cheerleaders, if not the biggest. Her and a guy she met named George Stimson back in the 80s started to team up and formed a website for Charles Manson. And they ran that thing for years. Somewhere in the 2000s, I don't know what year, 2005, is the last, uh, is the first time I was able to catch back up with her. Somewhere around 2005 or 2006, they took the website down. Word had it from the circles. And when I say the circles, I'm talking about the internet boards that we use to research this. A lot of times, what will happen, Tom, some of the websites that are now dedicated to the, to the Tate LaBianca murders, a lot of these players, family members themselves, former family girls themselves, will log on to these websites, these message boards, under assumed names. Mm -hmm. And they'll read about this case themselves, and they'll read about themselves, and, and, and so forth. And then they'll contact you on the side. I've had some of these girls, some of the former people, contact me about what I do. And uh, 
try to clarify some of the things I may or may not have said, and they, that's about as far as they go. I try to establish these relationships, and hopefully down the line they'll come back and want to talk to me further. But, but that's the kind of people you have out there reading these things, actual family members themselves or whatnot. You're listening to The Tom Gully Show. That'll do it. Pod damn. This is entertainment. And it's free, so you can't really complain about the quality now, can you? But please go to thetomgullyshow.com, follow me on Twitter at Atomic Palooka, like us at The Tom Gully Show on Facebook, and of course, you can always email me at tom at thetomgullyshow.com. Viewers of the Monday through Friday shows know they can send photos or audio files, and I will use them on the show, so send away. To view the shows live, just go to justin.tv slash tomgully, but for everything else, it's thetomgullyshow.com. And again, very special thanks to Jay Silver from MIT, Handsome Johnny Starr from a Turnbuckle near you, and Brian Davis of StarCityRadio.com and the Tate LaBianca radio program. If you like the show, well, why not tell a friend? Why keep it to yourself? It's not like it's a secret, you know. That's going to do it. I'm out of here. I got to go talk to some people. I will talk to you much later. Well, the bucket lifts a twig for a dog that's nothing big, but he don't want to. And the dog can't grab a cat or a coon can do all that, but he don't want to. And I dream of you. Night while you hold your baby tight, but he don't want you.